Thanks, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Fandom Sessions. I am here with my good buddy, Daniel, and we are going to talk to the one and only Mr. Brennan Small. Brennan, how are you, sir? Hi, everyone. Uh, good to be here. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Good. Well, we're, we're very yeah. glad you took some time to meet with us. We're humongous fans. Can't even tell you how big of fans we are. We're very excited. So thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. But um, But it's nice to meet you. It's nice to be here and uh, i'm not irritated being here i'm very happy to be here uh fill my neck it's kind of bothering me that's the only irritating thing that i can think of <laughs> that, good. things are good right on you know what it is i've been playing a lot of guitar really yes <laughs> never would have guessed i've been playing a lot of guitar. yeah i know i mean but i've been playing a lot more lately because we have a tour coming up and um and uh it's the kind of guitar playing that's like not necessarily fun guitar playing it's just like just sitting there with a metronome all day long uh and uh getting your guitar height proper getting your right arm right all that stuff but i don't want to hey listen i'm already uh derailing your interview so please please you take over no no um that actually leads into uh one one of the questions uh for the tour um so when it comes to the tour you all have to you know, sort of, uh, I guess, for lack of better words, rehearse uh, what you guys are going to be doing for the show. Uh, mm -hmm. What does a uh, rehearsal look for you and the rest of the band members? Um, well, it starts early because with the show that we do with um, our live show, which we haven't done, we haven't done a tour in 10 years. Um, we've done a couple one offs lately, and those are always very treacherous. So but before we even go and get in a room with each other, I need to sit down with an editor and with a compositor and we need to kind of construct what the show is. We've got all these kind of songs that we've done before. We've got some new stuff we're going to be putting in and uh, some new ideas. So you have to sit there with um, the premiere timeline and um, and you have to do some building of some new things. And you have to, before we even commit to what the songs are, I sit and I have a long conversation with Gene Hoagland uh, the drummer of Death Clock, you also know from Archangel, Death, uh, Strapping Young Lad, Testament, really kind of strong partner in this, this whole process because he really runs the show um, in that he's the drummer. He gets a click track fed to his headset and um, and it really comes, and, and we really, really, um, uh, we really uh, have to make sure that we, um, have the intros right from from when one song ends to another song beginning i need to make sure that gene's okay with that timing and all that stuff um but uh um so yeah so we have a lot of dis discussions and we talk about the order of the songs you know where we are how fast we can play how soon can we play the fastest stuff that we can play all that stuff and uh what is the what is the actual kind of experiential nature of the order of the songs so we think about all that stuff we think about the audience we have these conversations and then we finally commit to this timeline and then we all practice on our own and then we all show up at a rehearsal place practice. for about a so week before Billy Brosh is joining us she was in the last two one-off seller uh you know him from uh you know him from uh he played with Joe Satriani he played with Steve Vai uh he's played with Def Clock for a long time and Gene so it's the four of us and we sit there in a the room and we just need to get our monitor mixes right. We need to get, it's all this practical stuff, you know, just like we need to hear ourselves. We need to hear each other and we need to kind of check in with each other and we need to check parts. You know, if we're doing a three part guitar, mini 
good a three-part guitar harmony how do we cover that somebody doing double stops well one person is doing the melody somebody doing octaves how do we how do we get how do we make it sound like the record and um so so we're always kind of checking in and checking in with each other and uh again these are musical perfectionists they don't like any speed bumps we like to smooth everything out and get get the absolute best performance we possibly can when we're playing live and uh I don't know. I think we're so ready to go out on the road that everyone's just ready already. Everyone's just ready. <laughs> and I haven't even finished the song order yet. But, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a pretty good rudimentary understanding of what that is. It's within like one song or, or so. So so that's what it looks like. It's not it's really organizational. You're talking about like creativity and Aquarians. There is <laughs> total chaos, but there is like just some amount where we can um, organize within this kind of bonkers chaos, you know, the, the chaotic nature of making music writing scripts all that stuff at some point you have to get kind of organized so so that's that's what we're doing is getting organized and it's no fun but uh, the planning part is fun i bet and also uh, i've spoken to a couple of other uh, bands and musicians uh usually they have a, a set list before they go on tour but then uh the first couple of cities are more of a how did this set list do you know we need to tweak it we need to modify it uh, especially with watching uh, the Adult Swim uh, Festival where you guys played on that stage. Um, you had some visuals in the background. I know that can be chaotic to last minute change. Do you tend to travel with the same set list or do you tend to tweak it here and there depending on how the audience reacts? We have the ability to tweak it if we really want to. Um, but um, but what we really want to do is kind of nail a consistent show. Um, because it is tricky. It isn't like just like, hey, just let's cross out one song title and throw in another. We have to like get get the computer out and we have to render the whole thing again and uh, and make sure it, it all makes it, it all works, you know, because um, there have been shows when we first started where things were treacherous, where we didn't have it completely nailed. And what we really do from show to show is we kind of drop the needle on the timeline and hope nothing screws up because it's just one track starting from the very beginning of the show to the very end it's almost like playing a dvd or a blu-ray or something like that and pressing play and getting to the end of the movie by the end so that's what it's like and um and therefore we try to keep it simple once we have it once we set it we try to forget it but we do have an option if we really really need to swap something out um and again once we get on the road once we get really good at everything we tend to get bored so we like a new challenge along the way nice okay. and uh so, one of the questions i do have for you is uh metallica did their world tour back in 2017 and uh they toured with uh, baby metal uh they got a lot of backlash for uh touring with baby metal they are you guys are doing a co-headline tour uh james had to go on social media and kind of back the the reason why they chose baby metal have you gone through any backlash or um any statements or anything from uh, from the fan base kind of just saying like, hey, that's not the right choice to go with? Um, well, I don't think that. I don't think it's the, the wrong choice. So I, I don't know who I would disagree with here. And also, I mean, I don't... I um I know who they are. I know what they do, and uh, there's a reason that we're touring with them, and their audience is gigantic. Um, I mean, Metallica is really gigantic, um, but what I think about is... If I'm a heavy metal fan, and I am, and I go and people like down and dirty, just like easy shows, or just like just insane playing and 
and insane energy on stage. I like shows that are really well produced on stage. I like being I like being entertained. I like being in the audience and being entertained like crazy. And baby metal gives us that. They really do. There's nothing else like baby metal out there. There's um there there's no band like them, and they are intensely entertaining. And I think the show that you're gonna get with Death Clock and Baby Metal, you're not gonna be able to beat it. I think it's gonna be like it's gonna be like an evening of Las Vegas heavy metal, just <laughs> entertainment. And that's that's what it is. So I'm not trying to revolutionize anything. I just think it's gonna be a really entertaining show when you really get down to it. We're both um we're both really excited to be working together. And when somebody pitched the idea to me and the kinds of venues we'd be playing together, I got very, very excited. And um, and I I think when you see the show, you're gonna agree with me. Nice. And, I'm uh, excited. And yeah, and, and we're also not Metallica, we're we're Death Clock, which just means that we're not even Death Clock. Death Clock doesn't <laughs> exist. What we are is a group of people who are celebrating this this TV show and this uh discography, and that's what we're doing. So it's nothing like what you're gonna get from Metallica. The feeling that you get from Metalocalypse versus Metallica are completely different. So I don't know how you can compare any of this stuff. That's that's what I would say. But I do think. You, if you want to come and have an evening that you won't forget where you can't wipe the smile off your face, come see our show. Definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So you've kind of talked about the uh, the more technical side of the songwriting or not the songwriting process, but, you know, building the set list and stuff like that. So let's switch gears to more of the exciting side. Um, so when you're coming up with the songs initially, before you're able to, you know, put the set list together when you're when you're creating the new songs, what's what's your songwriting process? Well, it's really funny when I'm like deep in a project, especially a Metalocalypse related project. What I what I am, I I kind of go away, and Death Clock takes over. Um, so all I can do is what I am is I'm a I'm I'm some stupid jerk who works for Death Clock. <laughs> And um, and they tell me what they want, and I try not to screw it up. And that's how every single part of this thing, like, and sometimes I'll try to squeeze my ideas in, and Death Clock goes, I don't think so. We're doing what Death Clock wants to do. And so if Death Clock, uh, so, so what I do as I work for the band is I sit there like a jerk with my guitar, and I have Pro Tools open, and um, I did about like 30 or 40 demos for for riffs for like some of them just like one riff some of them is like a whole odyssey of music some of them is, is like a feel like i know i'm gonna need a, a song somewhere along this line but i'm not sure and i just keep sculpting it out but to me the metaphor is like i go to, i go to like uh to like a slot machine and i just pull the lever every single time and sometimes i get like a shoe and a lemon and like a flower <laughs> and uh then I'm like, I can't use that. And I get, pull it again. I go, hey, two apples and a cat. Like, okay, I can do something with that. Okay. And I'm like, okay, hey, uh, a bowler hat and, you know, like uh, something, I don't know. So you, you're always just kind of trying to find something that uh, that tickles your ear in some way. And, and also, I'm sure you guys write lots of music. You know that getting a song across the finish line means you really have to love it from the beginning and have some kind of... Uh, some kind of care and some kind of like a association or some kind of relationship with it to get it all the way to the end, be it like epic, fast and furious or brutal. Something has to resonate with the person that has to drag it 
on fire across the finish line, you know, four flat yeah. tires and an engine on fire. You have to like get it across the finish line. So, um, so that's the process. It's never like every time, every time I do a record for myself or for death clock, every time I finish it, I think that's it. I've done it. I proved I can do it. I'm never doing it again. It's just, it's just too much. Every time I do it, I think there's no reason for me to ever do this again. Yeah. I just like, I just like, you know, did, what, did whatever I had to do to get to this finish line. And I'm satisfied and I'm happy. I'm really excited, but dear God, enough's enough. That's how I feel. <laughs> So you try to stick your ideas in, but Dick Nubler's like, no, creatively, like no, yeah, no, no, no. Dick Nubler's voice comes in my head, and like every, <laughs> all those voices come into my head. It really is strange. It's it's just it's like going in deep cover, and all of a sudden I'm I'm Death Clock is taking over in my brain. And what does Nathan Explosion want the lyrics to be? And that's his. That's where he takes over. That's fair. But um, um. But oh, the, the process is so. I, th then I sculpt out these demos within an inch of their life, and I say, "This is what I. This is at least the energy of what the drums should be. These are matching the riff." And I, again, I go and partner with Gene Hoagland, and I say, "You got any questions? Here's 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 the main gauntlet that I throw down every time. I bring forth an idea, and you. It's your job to beat it with something cooler. Or if you like what I did, make it your own. Do whatever. But." Um, I want creativity to still be alive. If you've got a, a, something that I didn't hear, please tell me because it doesn't need to just be one point of view. And then I work with the producer, co-producer, uh, engineer, mixer, and master, um, Ulrich Wild. And Ulrich, you know, he's my neighbor and we've been working together for 15 plus years or so. And, um, and we just sit there and have quiet, thoughtful conversations about stuff. But at some point, I get the drums recorded. I have my rhythm guitars recorded, and then I come back to this very studio, and I start experimenting even more. I audition every idea that I possibly can that I think makes sense with what Death Clock wants, and and then ultimately, um, I still even like knee deep in the songwriting process, I give myself the ability to trash parts and replace them, and and ask myself, is there something punchier? or cooler that I can do in this chorus or in this area or this solo or whatever it is, or I can rip it up and throw it away. And that rip it up and throw it away part is something that you learn as a writer is kind of one of the most um, satisfying and empowering feelings is that you don't have to stick with an idea that you don't 100% love. So, so I definitely spend the time in overdubs and I'm still sculpting the song until I'm handing it out. Until like, even sometimes in the mix, I go, wait a minute, hold on, I'll be right back. I just thought of something. So I'll just keep on. And I've, having your own studio affords you the ability to do it. And anyone can have Pro Tools at home or whatever it is, or Logic. And uh, to me, it's just a big, it's, a, it's really important that I have these big um, open sketch pads in front of me where I can constantly write in them and uh and cross things out and scribble all over it or write a little note but that's how pro tools is for me and then i have dry erase boards and i have i'm always writing i'm always using my hand and i need to see what it is what the song structure is whatever it is so i'm always thinking about that stuff and i'm also thinking like with song structure there's not one way to do stuff there's, there are a million ways to do something and so i like to uh experiment with song structure too and say what will keep my ear moving forward in this crazy journey and then just ultimately does nathan explosion think it's okay no i i get that because you know as a writer myself 
I write a lot of fiction. And if I'm writing something first person with a specific character, I may go in wanting it to go a certain direction, but the character takes over. It's like, nope, it's not going this way. It's going to go this other way. And it'll totally take you in a different direction that you may not have originally thought of before, but it ends up most times ends up being a lot better. So I, I can definitely understand yeah. that for sure. Well, I mean, hope, hopefully like, like what you want the audience to go through is some kind of hypnosis. You want the world to kind of fall away and the song or the narrative or whatever it is to take over. Yeah. You don't want them. You don't want these little speed bumps kind of pulling you out and taking you out of the, the whole thing. You want like a smooth overall, just you're in this world now and you don't even, you don't even know that there's an end in sight. You're just living inside of it. So so hopefully you can hypnotize yourself at the same time as the maker of these things, as the writer, as the guitarist, as the singer, whatever it is, and uh, and follow along with the rules, you know. So so yeah, what you what you guys are talking about is creativity stuff, which which is something over the last ten years I've been studying. Because if you're if we decide that we're all going to be creative for a living, how do we make the most of ourselves? How do we use ourselves the best? And how are we each individually creative? Um, and I I've been studying it for myself, so I know that. <laughs> Being a writer, being a musician, uh, being a, you know, whatever, any of that stuff. Uh, I have to know the best use of myself. You know, what times of day am I the most creative? What times of, uh, and and for some like blank page writing, what, you know, that's like miserable. When do I do that? And when do I solve the problem? So I've, I've devised a lot of plans and a lot of ideas of what works for me. I don't know if it works for everybody. But the project that I just completed employed all of that because we had a lot of stuff to do in a very short amount of time. Sure. So um, with metal being kind of a niche interest, um, how hard was it to sell Death Clock and Metalocalypse originally to Cartoon Network? It was way easier than it should have been. Um, really? But okay. that's because they were in such a cool experimental place at that time. I don't think there's any other time where we could have sold this show and made it because um adult swim was definitely like they were they were starting to kind of build their audience um and i i knew them from my previous show home movies and so they knew that like if i'm the writer of that show or one of two writers or the head writer um co-creator that i can deliver as as we need you know part, part of the thing about being creative is it is chaos but we also have to deliver some kind of a product at the end of being you know sure. you know the, the whole artistic process so so went to them and said like look i think we want to do like an extreme metal band show where they're the biggest act on earth and um bigger than the beatles you know just the biggest there's so there's such a cultural impact that the CIA, FBI, this Illuminati group is following them. And I don't know that we need to understand any of the dialogue that the band is saying. And I'm not, I think I'm serious about that. And they said, oh, that's a green light, write it up. And so I said, oh, right, write yeah. it up. Right. I'd have to make this show. You can't just pitch a show, then not make it. <laughs> Which is always like, it's always a wonderful daydream to go, oh, this could happen and that could happen. But then it, when it comes yeah. down to how the hell am I going to make any of this stuff work? Which is what a director is. And, uh, sometimes, and the writer is optimistic, you know? Yes, we can do that. We can do all this stuff. And then the director's like, with the budget that I have, with the timeline that I have, with the resources that I have, how the fuck am I going to make any of this stupid bullshit work? And it's a conversation between yourself that you're really having. So you're always kind of negotiating against your own budget, borrowing, bargaining against yourself, and trying to figure out how to make the project work. So 
in this case, when we finally got the okay to kind of start putting the project together, that we gotten like some kind of a development deal, I knew that I needed to not write the show just yet because I didn't know anything about the characters or anything. What I wanted to do was take a month or two off and just pull the slot and start writing riffs and yeah. pull 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 the, the lever on the slot machine that I was talking about earlier and start writing riffs and go, is this what Death Clock is? Is this what Death Clock is? Is this okay? So I, and then I started going, this is an animated show. This is not real. This is what I say it is. This is some kind of like crazy world that doesn't exist. Nobody asked for this show. But they're getting it anyway, and so let's at least, at least make sure that we want we like what we're doing. So, so that's yeah. what it is. So I started writing a lot of music, and what I would end up writing would be like some stuff that would be the first season of Metalocalypse, and some stuff that would end up being like kind of too melodic and end up being this Galacticon project that I'd go back to years after. And then ultimately, I started kind of going, oh, this can be like kind of cool. The music can be somewhat self-serious and deadpan and funny at the same time, or just kind of brutal or kind of just epic or, you know, have some kind of thing that links it into this world. Then we're all OK. So we kind of made up the rules as we went along and then and then developed the rest of the show, decided who the characters were, started kind of like putting a team together and. And then, and then what I really wanted to do is make sure we didn't just do a pilot, but we got an order for 20 because I heard they were doing 20 episode orders. So we got into budget stuff. So I went to like Tim and Eric well, way back in the early days to like uh, Tom Goes the Mayor because I, I wanted to see what I thought would be the cheapest to produce show and see if we could take that budget and do a lot more with it visually build a bigger world. You know, I came from home movies, which is a very small claustrophobic show, and I wanted to expand it and make our just our sets bigger make pull the camera back you know yeah, yeah. a half a mile away and make everything seem bigger and more grandiose so all that development came in and then we you know between me and tommy and john schnepp and antonio canobio and chris pranowski and mark brooks and felipe salazar and more and more people that worked with us we just built this big kind of collaborative thing where where um we really wanted to challenge ourselves to deliver something unique every single week so that was that's the whole story of how the show got made and it really was just like um like i said whatever our taste or skill set was that was ours and and what the show was had very little kind of um influence outside of it it was just kind of what we thought would be interesting funny and also something that we wanted to the thing is there's so many shows and even back then when the show started there were a ton of shows on basic cable but we always wanted something that would stick in your head just a little bit more after credits. Plus, there's an, an another in a series of little philosophies that we kind of thought of, which was that, look, I want to do a show for me when I was discovering heavy metal, when I was like 14 years old, getting my first guitar, um, wishing that I could turn on the TV and see anyone talking about the things that I was interested in, um, or MTE wouldn't do it. Maybe Headbangers Ball would, but you'd, you'd have to like, You'd have to like have these like side conversations with people and learn things and trade tapes and do all that crazy stuff to learn about like I had I couldn't find any of this information from my family. I'd have to like make friends with the heavy metal kids and go teach me, you know, when I was a kid, like I like Guns N' Roses and what else is there? And they're like, oh, there's Slayer, there's King Diamond, there's Iron Maiden, there's, you know, there's all this stuff. So my good friend down the street helped me understand what heavy metal was. And without him, I don't know if I would be the same person that I am now. But he kicked the door open, and uh, and that's 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 who, when I kind of started thinking. Oh, here I am, fourteen years old, 
um, trying to define my personality, trying to figure out who the hell I am. And, and the way I'm doing it is through music and through my interest in music and through this, this personal kind of relationship I have with my guitar. So all that stuff comes into the show where I go, oh, I want to make the guitar somewhat accurate. I want Squisgar to be playing every single episode. I want to at least make it look like he's playing the right stuff and uh, all that stuff and Toki too and, and the band and all that stuff. So trying to put all that, all those little tiny things in there was part of the show too. And I thought this is like, this is for me, this is a gift to myself and anybody who's like me when I was 14, you know? That's awesome. So, all that stuff. So since you brought up home movies, are there any uh, common thematic threads between home movies and Metalocalypse at all? Or are they just completely 100% different? Um, you know, that's that's the really fun part about going from home movies to this show is that I didn't want to repeat home movies because I really had a strong affection for the work that we all, for the show, for the characters, for the work that we did together. And, um, and I wanted to do a show that just felt like an adult swim show because home movies just stuck out like a sore thumb. I loved what we did. Again, yeah, no one told us to make this weird show. We did it anyway. And um, and so I thought this this other show should be like should fit in with like the Aquatine Hunger Force world. This should fit in with, you know, like the Space Ghost world and yeah. be a little bit more absurd. And, I, and it's a fun if you're a writer, it's really fun to be able to, to get grandiose in that way. Sure. So. Um, but there, there are these are both about uh, creative families, you know. So home movies is about a group of kids who are kind of wrestling through their life and through the trials and tribulations of childhood, uh, as they take themselves incredibly seriously trying to make these ridiculous movies. Metalocalypse is about this, the exact same thing about these idiots who are uh, celebrity dipshits who don't know what time it is, what day it is, uh, or how a doorknob works, and and. <laughs> They're going to have to become like uh, these go from being these lost boys to uh, to maybe being uh, the adults in the room. So that's that's the whole thing. But ultimately, the, this is a creative family. These kids or these 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 grownups in kids suits or these kids in grownup suits, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So there's like there, there's a lot of thematically similar stuff, but you wouldn't really notice it unless unless I, unless I bring it up at all because what these guys are rude assholes home movies are like they're fragile and like sensitive you know yeah but but these guys are also rude assholes because they're fragile and sensitive that's fair so there's a lot of there's a lot of like you know it's it's actually you know as as silly and bonkers and over the top as we make it its foundation is somewhat psychological yeah though you know we don't always you know shine a light on it so yeah so so they're, they're similar I'm interested in, in creativity. I mean, that's I mean, yeah. that's all we've been talking about. But that's what these shows are about is being creative for a living, yeah. you know. And I mean, to be fair, I think home movies would definitely fit in the same category as Aquatine Hunger Force, maybe just like a like a junior version, like yeah. Hunger yeah. Force for, for younger kids, because, you know, Aquatine Hunger Force isn't something I would necessarily show my seven year old, but I would yeah. have no issue showing them home movies, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, home movies is something there's something. um something gentle and sweet about it but yeah but everyone's still really irritated and, and you know like brendan is like a control freak and mcgurk is an irritated <laughs> you know yeah. child and uh yeah. <laughs> paula doesn't know what she's doing and you know and they're the people that she works with at school don't know what they're doing and her ex-husband doesn't know what he's so doing. one of the no. things i read online uh could have been reddit or uh an article 
was just saying that uh, when you uh, graduated from Berkeley, uh, your music uh, degree, is that, you know, uh, your passion was music. But right around the 90s, you felt like music or rock and roll music was dying out. Uh, so you decided uh, to pursue comedy and stand up comedy. What made you feel that uh, rock was actually dying out? I, I didn't think rock was dying out. I just what I thought was I graduated in the late 90s and from Berkeley College of Music, which is a really great music school. And I really like the academics of music. I really like learning about scales, chords, all that nerdy stuff. Again, my heavy metal friend that I talked about when I was a kid who taught me who Slayer and Metallica was, he went to music school with me. So he was academic too. And we were, we had this wonderful co competition with each other where I wanted to learn more than he did. He wanted to learn more than I did. I wanted to play better than he did. And we would just always just be like, we would keep each other. We made each other way better guitar players just by, by being friends. And we made each other smarter people by, you know, trying to learn more than the other person. And we always had to keep, keep up. It's a really, it was a really wonderful, healthy thing. And also competitive. Um, <laughs> The, the truth was that I was seeing like the end. Of, I was I was sitting there hiding out in music school, wondering what the hell I was going to do with my life, you know, and I knew that I really cared about the guitar, but I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with it. You know, I didn't know what my relationship with the guitar was. I was going. And, and in fact, when you're at music school long enough, you kind of go through an, a musical identity crisis, because even though I love heavy metal and I love Ingve and I love Satriani and Steve Vai and all and John Petrucci and all these, you know, great instrumentalists and stuff. Um, I was also, I was doing that stuff on my own, you know, transcribing Steve Morse solos and stuff. And, and I was being taught like jazz chord solos. And I was in a country guitar lab and I was studying, you know, traditional harmony, like figured bass and classical music and etudes and chorales and stuff like that, where those are part of like writing exercises. So at some point you look around and go, I don't know if I'm a jazz guitar player or a heavy metal guitar player or a country guitar player or like because you're learning everything at once and i'm not even sure and the truth is that that's what i should have been doing i should have been learning everything and i and i did I, and i retained a lot of cool stuff from that but but i didn't know what i was gonna do with guitar and new metal was happening and i thought it was fine it didn't it didn't move me that much and no but the thing was guitar solos were disappearing so it wasn't that rock and roll was gone because there was a lot of cool rock and roll that i liked especially in the late 90s i love Soundgarden. i love i love tons of bands <laughs> um and uh and they're great. And, and fucking Kim Thale plays the shit out of his guitar. And I love him and I love his playing. Um, but uh but but I didn't know what I was gonna do. And 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 what I did was so this is like just like I don't know what I'm gonna do. I was really into movies too. I was always into movies. I was, you know, constantly watching movies. I worked at a movie theater while I was at music school at the Copley Center. I so I just sat there and watched, I got the best job I could ever have. I don't think I've beaten that job. I would sit there and disappear in movies all day long and no one could find me. And I got paid. I would just disappear and go and see movies over and over and over again. And I would go to another theater and see movies. And I, I could travel around Boston and just see any movie. And I would just slip into movies all day long. Best job I've ever had. And then um, at some point, uh, at some point, I decided, okay, I'm going to get into film composing. And I took a lot of films, arranging classes and film composing classes. And I thought, how do I get into this? And my buddy Jed was like, oh, I bet you we can get you an internship over my before my final year of music school. And so I went to New York and I I went I, I interned at Jingle Houses or they or they write music for commercials. So I wrote for like that. I didn't write. I got coffee for people and I like 
tidied up guitar cables. I'd like <laughs> clean the guitar cables with like fine grade grade sandpaper, and that's what I would do. I'd just like sit there and give myself blisters cleaning cables. Um, but I got to see like what post production was like, and. While I was doing that, my buddy Jed was interning at Conan O'Brien, and I found myself finishing up work, getting everything tidy, cleaning up in the office, just so I could leave early enough to be a fly on the wall to see how TV production it, it was made, you know, how TV was made, how Conan O'Brien was made. And, I, and they'd let me all the way up there. They thought I was an intern, and I would just sneak in and watch. And, and I thought, this is bigger than music. This is, uh, well, this production, making this is different than recording a guitar or playing guitar live. This is really interesting. And this seems like a really good brain puzzle. And I'm really attracted to it. So my brain starts dragging my body to comedy clubs. I have nothing to do with it. I'm hypnotized. I'm going around from place to place. Um, just just checking stuff out. And eventually I start, you know, I, I cold called people that did stand up for the first time. People I didn't know. And I said, hey, I understand you did stand up. Can you walk me through the process? And so they. So they'd go, well, you got to look around in the room and find who the manager of the place is. And you talk to them about booking time. And usually they put you on like a Tuesday night at midnight and you go and you bomb and then you go and bomb again and you eat shit and figure out how, how to. So I was like, yes, yes, go on. And so by the last year of music school, I, I thought this comedy thing is something that I've been interested in my whole life. And I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with music. I just don't know what I'm going to do. I know I really want to do it and I want to be in charge of it. And I really like playing my guitar, but I don't know what I'm going to do. So my last year of music school, I started taking comedy writing classes uh, where I would end up with a spec script, you know, like a, a script that's like a, like a Seinfeld, you know, like an, in, an invented new story, which is kind of a showcasing of how you can write story jokes and write in the characters voices. And that's how that's how you get hired to be a TV writer. So I did that and I would just spend as much time as I would on guitar. I'd say, like, if I'm going to practice for two hours on guitar, that's how much time I'm going to just be writing, free writing, writing for characters, trying to come up with a story, anything, whatever I'm doing for two hours, I'm going to think as hard as I possibly can, just like when you're sitting behind your instrument and trying to solve problems. Why isn't this working? There's a really good reason. This hand and this hand aren't talking to each other. What's happening? So all that stuff. So to me, though, changing guitar for comedy, it wasn't changing one thing for another. It's everything's still a guitar as far as I'm concerned. It's it's some kind of thing to express yourself. And if you can learn the, the laws and rules of the guitar or the laws and rules of, um, you know, Pro Tools or the laws and rules of uh, Premiere, you know, editing or whatever, it's all the same thing. It's all the timeline. You're always just telling a story. So don't think of it as a different thing. Think of it as the exact same thing. You just have to find out where the frets are or the tone knob is or where to where to pick. So being a director, being a writer, being an actor, and being a guitarist, to me, are the exact same thing. So I don't see them as being different. Some of them are very loud and some of them are very quiet. So even like home movies, you know, trashy out-of-tune guitars and then death clock in tune, <laughs> accurate, you know, like heavier, lower. It's To me, it's all the same thing. You just kind of are arranging it differently. So that's that's the philosophy that it is like as far as being creative. Stop thinking of them as different things. Think of them all as a guitar. Something that, because in order for you to have gotten as far as you have on guitar, you had to really, really take it seriously. And it's just you versus yourself. That's all it is. The only person <laughs> stopping you from being good is you. You know, the only reason you're you've plateaued or I plateaued or whatever it is is because we haven't allowed ourselves to get better. It's all that stuff. So, so that's what I think. That was really inspiring. Holy shit. <laughs> That was a good message. 
Well, it, it is. I mean, seriously, it's just think, don't think of it as a different thing. Think of it as the same thing. And yeah. just also and the other part of that whole thing is um, failing is really important. Like really getting your ass kicked in front of your peers is really important as it turns out. It really is like, because every time I tried to do something new from playing guitar in front of people to doing stand up in front of people, it was met. My first outing of all of them was met uh, with just fucking people didn't. I was awful. I was so awful that people are like, just get the fuck off the stage. Do not be around when there's entertainment. <laughs> and that's, and the truth is that that's, that's where you learn is that stage. So you have to like go up and not be a professional and become a professional. Just keep yeah. going up there. And that's the big difference between people who, the people that can just go, oh, this is the pain. Now that I know what it is, it's not so bad. Um, just going and also no one gives a shit about how many times you fail they only remember the, the stuff no one here is talking about like hey remember when you ate shit that time on stage they're talking about <laughs> shit that, that did work you know yeah and stuff they're only talking about that stuff so <laughs> be you so, know rub some salt in your wounds and you'll you'll live another day you know see that's a lesson that uh failure humbles you well yeah it uh, humbles you but it also shows you that like it's not yeah, it does humble you. It's not going to be easy. If it were easy, then what would I care about? I mean, the truth is that the part of the reason I was failing at guitar when I was first playing guitar in front of people is because I cared so much about it that I didn't want to make a mistake that I destroyed myself on stage. If I didn't give a shit, I could have played better. But I had to like give a shit and make peace with the audience and learn how to control my body from like freaking out or having too much lactic acid in my muscles or gripping too tight. <laughs> Losing, you know, the the relaxed, fluid feeling that you know when you're playing at your best, you you, you achieve. And really, you don't, you don't lose, you learn. Yeah, I mean, but some people, but I did have like that that moment. And there are a couple of moments where I'd done stand-up or I'd played guitar in front of people where I was like, this is the point where people quit. Like in the books, this is where someone says, I can't do this. My body can't do it. My brain can't do it. It's over. I should move forward with my life and become a salesperson or something like that. You know, like... Uh, joins you know whatever but um but truthfully i'm so stubborn and i'm so competitive that that i could not allow my that to be the end of the story so i'm like i have to change this but that and what i realized throughout my life it happens so often and and even like pitching a tv show or or any of that stuff is the same thing where you're like you're going to get the door slammed in your face all the time if you audition for something you're not going to get it chances are good but you you have to go through that process and you have to keep on challenging yourself so the challenge is like just oh that's the, the most difficult horrible thing you did becomes commonplace and again rub salt in the wounds kill the nerves and keep moving forward and try to think clearly so so that's that's really important though i mean yeah and for every like i think people that make a a career out of this business it's pretty amazing because they, they're, they are addicted to it. You know, um, you join the carnival one day and some days you're cleaning up elephant shit and some days you're <laughs> the star, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like, if you're crazy enough to join this business and you have the wherewithal to just kind of keep, keep at it, you know, you'll, chances are pretty good. You're going to do something creative that, uh, no one's going to give it to you. You just have to go and beg for it and earn it and go out there, you know? So, Failure is important, I guess, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Uh, with um, your heavy involvement in music, just having a long music career, it being a big part of your life, what does music mean to you? 
And then to follow up with that, um, if you could give yourself, your younger self, any piece of advice, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, okay, so what does music mean to me? We'll start with that. Music's like, a, I don't know. I think about like, you can see my dog back there. She's sleeping. <laughs> but she's, um, she's adorable, by the way. She's a nice dog. But what she is, is like uh, every pet, I think, is an emotional support pet. You know what I mean? You see people like carrying them on airplanes and stuff like that and little boxes and stuff. But every pet is an emotional support pet. And I think music is the same way, is that it's like some kind of like important, like um, it's this important mood stabilizer. This, you know, that is like whatever my condition is, whatever ADD, OCD, whatever the thing that makes me get meticulous about guitar notes, meticulous about shots, meticulous about scripts, meticulous about words. Whatever that o OCD, ADD thing is that, that we all have, that are, you know, creative people all have like a little bit of it, just a little bit of it, you know, some different cocktail of it. But whatever it is that I, that, that music is part of that. So when I need to relax and I need to hang out, I put on music. When I, when I need to like uh, stabilize myself, I put on music. Um, and also I think I love storytelling and storytelling and music to me go hand in hand. That's what's to be cinematic is that it's gorgeous visuals that are telling a story supported by music and to me that's that's the coolest thing in the world to have visuals and have cool music together um so music means uh like i said and also music you can manipulate the hell out of anything with you know um you can make it empowering you can make it devastating you can make it um uh dramatic it, it can be fire and brimstone it can be operatic it can be mellow and you know just help you sleep whatever it is you can you can evoke so many grandiose emotional things out of music that uh um learn about how much money there is and learn about how that money is being used because you can do a lot with very little and this is kind of the Roger Corman school of production is that if you think hard enough and you get ahead of your budget and if you need to shoot something, like if you want to shoot a music video or a feature or get into animation or whatever, learn about how the budgets work, you know, how much, what each line does, you know, from like an animator to a compositor to a, to a camera person, to a grip, to all that stuff. Learn about that. Learn about how much it costs. And, and you can really, you can really get it done. You really can. If you, if you outsmart your, your project sooner rather than like getting to the end of your budget early and having to turn something in that you're not happy with. So I think professionally and artistically, learn what your budgets are. Go read a book about Roger Corman and all the movies that he's made. There are some of them. Um, all of them are in a situation where he gave a director some kind of a, a chance to, to do something. And depending on the tenacity of the director they would or they wouldn't you know and those directors would go on i mean roger corman is the the breeding ground for francis ford coppola um for uh i think uh even like ron howard uh jonathan demi tons of tons of great directors because they all really wanted it bad and they, they outsmarted their budgets so there's that and then i think um I think just know what know what you want to do and know what you don't want to do. You know, I mean, there are lots of shows out there where I think, oh, I wouldn't want to write that, and I don't think that's in me. I don't think that has anything to do with humanity or anything. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's important to have boundaries, creative boundaries. You know, um, I don't want to do shows I don't want to do. I don't want to do projects I don't want to do. I only want to do stuff that I want to do. 
because it's so hard. It's not worth doing the thing you don't want to do. So I think I knew that when I was a kid, though. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't think that was like news to me. So, um, yeah, use your voice and speak up. And and uh, I would say, but this is all stuff. Guitar taught me everything. If you put the hours and the work into something, um, it doesn't mean you got it. it. Still means you may have to develop another part of yourself. But uh, it's worth it and it's fun. I, I consider that I'm here because I really like to be creative and um, and uh, continue studying your own creativity and you'll you'll get to the the finish line maybe a little bit faster or a little bit in a in a slightly more uh, well-rounded way. I don't know. I'm just talking and no one's stopping me. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just take all the time you need. I know I'm just, bab I'm just babbling. I really am. I don't know. I don't know what the answer. <laughs> basically no, what I have said earlier you're good yeah, we, <laughs> we appreciate all of this we're just kind of just putting it all in um and I know you said you had another interview coming up so I don't want to keep you too much longer um I have a couple more quick questions the first one I need to ask is when it comes to the characters in Death Clock or even in Metalocalypse as a whole are any of them based off of people you know from real life or are they just all ones you just made up on the fly all right and so uh -huh. any of the characters inspired by real life people I guess I should say you know, I mean, not in any kind of major way. You know, Squiscar and Toki, the way that they talk was just something that I think I did with a buddy of mine. We would just add S's to words, like almost like by <laughs> the Sailor Man, like when we were in like high school, yeah. you know, joke around and make stupid, do stupid voices. Um, and then uh, in attitude, like there were like some Europeans that I knew in Boston that kind of like had a bit of a gregarious kind of like uh i remember even in music school there was a german guy who would like loudly say jokes and they wouldn't get laughs and they would just kind of and he had a he had a cadence that was somewhat i was like that's a really funny cadence especially when there's silence afterwards after trying to make a joke that's funny and i just kind of like store little things away nathan explosion nathan explosion physically was always meant to look like he was the one character in the show is meant to kind of like be an ode to corpse grinder from cannibal corpse okay um and 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 george has been a part of the show for a really long time and yeah, he, yeah. Knows, he very much knows this but uh he is such a great front man that it, he's undeniable uh you know and then you know we kind of just kind of think about like how do you build an ensemble um the bass player you know in the 90s he couldn't even hear the bass on metal music like i you turn on pantera even like you know injustice for all yeah. you can't hear it so what does that do to your ego um what does that make <laughs> so that was the question that, and that was the foundation of murder face like i can't be heard so i have to kind of invent a personality that's louder than my bass so that sure. i seem like the loudest person in the room so i seem like i have a job because i'm fearful that people don't respect me because i can't be heard right so that's murder face nathan is kind of the quarterback pickles is um a guy in his second career you know he's already become he's already a famous front man of a band who decided to start playing drums because he really um he really really believed in this band death clock you know um toki and squiscar are from neighboring countries uh with you know rivalries um with class systems and all that stuff so can we throw that in the band what's it like to be uh the other guitar player when the other when the first guitar player is the fastest guitarist alive whatever what would that do to your ego to be the second fastest guitar player alive so all this fragility in, in artistic kind of uh personalities fragility all that stuff inside of masculinity and that's the whole thing this show is a bunch of how masculine people communicate yeah. which is like football coaches they're rude to each other especially like you know growing up in the era that i did like dudes were tough 
you know uh and they speak a different language of like you know rough finality you know so um that's also part of the show uh charles oftenson was kind of an impression of my agent at the time but he was the person kind of like that i identified with more because it really is like herding cats you know dealing with sure these musicians in particular but maybe all musicians gotcha so really it's more you took different mannerisms and different things from people not 100 percent based off of an actual person you know other than charles of course right 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 i think yeah they had to they had to be um because i mean i know people have like compared these all these guys to existing heavy metal people and, and yeah. i think they could yeah, you could say yeah they do look like them and that wasn't our that wasn't necessarily we didn't know any of these people's personalities well enough to even have to make jokes about them because all we do is we know them playing music we don't know what they're like so we had to invent all this stuff ourselves and and I remember, you know, even doing the pilot episode, just trying to figuring out, figure out what they sounded like. I went back and redid, I think, all of Pickles' dialogue because it just wasn't punching through enough. I gave him this Midwestern accent, kind of more like Mark Borchard from American Movie. Um, so that was kind of my, and I'm from the Midwest too, so I was just kind of doing a little bit of a, more of a Midwestern draw for Pickles. Um, Murphy's didn't sound like Murphy's at all in the pilot. We went back and redid all of his dialogue as well. Because we just hadn't do a, do you want a headline? Is Death Clock ready to do something? What do you think? I'm like, I've always been ready. Let's go do it. And so we, and I'm like, fuck yeah, let's go. Let's bring Death Clock out there and let's just let's go do this 2019 one-off show and let's really bring the goods. And and so we did, and we we're really happy with with uh, the results. And so was everybody else. So that kind of kicked the door open. And this has kind of been this has been that show. I think kicked the door open, and that's what got us to where we are now. Awesome. So just that and um and yeah, just the band really likes to play this stuff live. Um the audience showed up. Um and like I said, I think that 10 year ago thing, I think you can argue that it really it took a while, but it paid off. Uh, it was really fun talking to you guys about creativity. And you got me on a subject that I think, you know, I, I put a lot of thought into it and I could definitely go on longer about it but uh but we definitely covered a lot of good creative ground this is all about how to um which is fun so thank you guys very much but i got it